Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. The book of Revelation, this is session 40. Uh, We've got about 120 or 130 sessions uh, slated, so you could say we're a third of the way through um, uh, tonight. This is session 40, a prayer movement in heaven and on earth. Now, this is a really, really cool session. It's cool because the content is so clearly there in the book of Revelation, but you wouldn't see it at a first read. You wouldn't see it maybe even at a second read. There were a number of us, just as a fun little uh, kind of reference point, there were a number of us that read through the book of Revelation every week for three years. Uh, We did it every week. There was a lot of discussion about it and prayer and all kinds of stuff. But there was a group of us that went on a journey. It was a challenge that the International House of of Prayer in Kansas City gave out for uh, everybody that was kind of tracking with IHOP in that hour to read through the book of Revelation every week for three years. And we did it. There was a bunch of us. I'd guess 20 or so. And, uh, And so as a result, we got more understanding about the book of Revelation. I mean, if you read anything... Once a week for three years, you're going to understand it better than when you started. Part of that really helped slingshot us into being able to do this series because now there's a bunch of us around here that we don't just understand the book of Revelation like, you know, a little bit. We don't have just a little bit of familiarity with it. We can see the themes because we've read it so many times. And so I just want to tell you the best way to become an expert at anything in the Bible is just keep reading it. You don't even have to be smart. You don't have to read any commentaries. You just keep reading it. And I don't think we're experts around here, but we do have a little bit of understanding after having given so much time and attention to this. Tonight's session is so much fun because this is a subject that is so clearly in the book of Revelation, uh, but again, you'd have to have familiarized yourself with it a little bit. Part one, overview of the end time worship and prayer movement. Now, what I want to tell you is the book of Revelation, end times, yes, but the book of Revelation, if you didn't have any other Bible verses... The book of Revelation clearly describes two global worship movements at the end of the age. Two. One that worships Satan and one that worships Jesus. And I want to use that word worship because it's actually the word that the Bible uses. Worship. A Satan worship movement that will cover the planet. And a Jesus worship movement that will cover the planet. And they're both happening at the same time. It's really crazy. One guy lives in this house, he's worshiping, you know, Satan. Next door neighbor, that girl, she's worshiping Jesus. And they're on the same street. And there's going to, I don't mean they follow, they commit to Satan. I mean they worship him like he's God. That's the kind of worship movement we're talking about. Now, that's a little bit different. A lot of times when we think about the end times, when we think about the whole concept of the Antichrist, we think like people following the Antichrist because he's powerful. We need to understand they're following the Antichrist and they worship him like he's God. So it's not just a a governmental situation, it's a religious situation. It's a worship movement. It's actually about worship. It says that people can't buy stuff at the grocery store unless they have the mark of the beast and they have to commit to worship this image. You know, right now in uh, in Islam, uh, across the, the world, five times a day, there's a call to prayer, and everybody who is a follower of, uh, of uh, Muhammad and of Allah, they get down on their face five times a day, and they worship a demon. 
They worship a lot. It's going to be something like that. I mean, we don't know exactly how many times a day do you have to worship the image. We don't know. What we do know is it's going to be a worship movement that's tied into economics, tied into daily life, tied into routines, tied into everything. It's a worship movement. So I want us to be thinking about that for a second because as you worship Jesus, your heart gets tenderized, right? What happens when you worship Satan? Your heart gets demonized. And it's going to be a worship movement because Satan knows that. And Satan is actually banking on the fact that as people worship him over and over and over and over, and they do it with songs, and they do it with this, and they do it with that, and they try to make it fun, and they make it enjoy. As that happens, people are going to become more and more calloused, walking in darkness to a greater degree. It's a really intense concept that's one that I want us to make sure that we understand. It's going to be two houses of prayer operating at the end of the age. The house of prayer that's committed to night and day worship of King Jesus. And the house of prayer across the earth, it will be structured differently, no doubt. But a house of prayer across the earth that will be committed to Satan worship, not just Satan obedience. It's different. Think about that. You obey out of fear. You worship somehow out of love and affection in your heart. We're talking about a worship movement of Satan. It's really intense. Well, that being the case, what I want us to understand, and we'll look at it a little bit in this session and in future sessions as well, is the book of Revelation, maybe this is a new idea for you, is the church of the end times prayer guide. It's the guide for the church to know what to be praying there's a lot of information in the book of Revelation that are going to tell us events and details and heart postures and, and trends in culture, good and bad. The, the book of Revelation is the end time prayer guide for the church. It's not the only thing we can pray, but it's a significant allow, uh, amount of instruction, ideas, identity for the church to be able to lock into and be praying. You know, this is a, a really crazy thought, but what if the church understood before the rise of Hitler, understood exactly what Hitler was going to do, what he was going to do in what order, to what nations, in, in what ways. What if the church with clarity could have been praying ahead of time, Lord, thwart this plan of Hitler. Lord, help your church respond rightly in Germany so that they don't wind up giving into this evil. Lord, help your church, help these people, help... What would have been the difference had the church been able to partner because of understanding of the events that were coming before they actually happened? We have that right now. It's called the book of Revelation. We understand what's going to occur, even sequentially. We're gonna know, that happened, we know what's next. The book of Revelation isn't only, but is for sure, a prayer guide for the church at the end of the age to know how to hold our hearts, what to pray, what to release, what to be in partnership with. All right, well, now let's talk about, just for the, the help setting the stage here, let's talk about Satan's agenda with a prayer movement and God's agenda with a prayer movement. Satan's agenda. Revelation 13, verse 8. Again, we're doing this study on the end of the book of Revelation, and we're touching on a lot of end-time themes but we're rooting the conversation in the book of Revelation so that we can see it in Revelation. The objective here is that at a, some point in the future, you're going to be able to read through the book of Revelation and understand all of it. You could get there, by the way, if you just read it every day. 
you'd get there even faster. But we're just kind of uh, giving some notes here to help us in a guided conversation about the book. So Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, talking about the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So what's Satan's objective in the end times? Satan's objective is to get the planet to worship the Antichrist. Worship. See the word? Worship. Not follow. That's a different thing. It's follow as well. Worship. Next, Revelation 13, 11 through 13. Similarly, I saw another beast. This was talking about the false prophet. It's coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. And he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Again, the first beast is the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. What's Satan's objective in this worship movement? It's to get the world to worship the Antichrist. And just as a little kind of word picture here, think about this. This will help you understand. God has a Christ. His name is Jesus. Satan has an antichrist. His name is Joe. We don't know his name yet. He's going to have a name, though. He's going to be a person. Satan has an antichrist. God has a Christ, Jesus, his son. Satan has an anti-version of that, who he wants to rule the world and he wants worshipped. And there's going to be a worship movement at the end of this age that will see that happen. I gave you here uh, part B, a description that worshiping the Antichrist is worshiping Satan. Uh, just You can look at that later, but it gives really clear uh, description that they worship the dragon. That's Satan. They worship the dragon in connection with worshiping the Antichrist. And if that's a hard concept, just think about worshiping the Father just like we worship Jesus the Son. It's the same idea. There's a connection. There's an unholy trinity, if you will, of the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan. And that's, they're flowing together in the same Antichrist spirit, okay? So anyway, I gave you that there. Now, let's look at the top of page two. The importance of an anointed prayer movement at the end of the age. Think about this now, okay? Let's now make a little bit of sense about an end-time prayer movement that worships Jesus we know that the primary function of it is the greatest commandment. It's to love Jesus. The primary, the reason for it, the, the, it's the worth of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of night and day prayer. So if we never accomplished anything else, we would get the main thing out of it by worshiping him night and day because he's worthy of night and day. And if there was double night and double day, he'd be worthy of double night, double day. But we're giving him all we can give him is the idea. Jesus is worthy of that. But now let's talk about one of the functions that occurs in this. Okay? You've got an antichrist worship movement that unfortunately is going to be anointed. It's going to be powerful. We need to recognize that we don't want to follow Satan, but nor can we pass off his power as illegitimate. He has power. It's real. It's not good. It's bad, but he has real power. This worship movement, this Satan worship movement is going to be powerful. Now, when there are powerful delusions, that causes problems. When there are powerful false miracles, that causes problems. When there is power resting on a worship movement and the center of that worship movement is Satan, that is tragic for planet Earth. That is a real problem. It is essential as one of the functions of the house of prayer in the end of the age 
that there is a prayer movement that is in partnership with Jesus so that people have, I mean, I hate to paint it this way, but they've got an alternative. So that people of the earth have got a way to be able to enter into wholehearted abandonment with the true source, with life, with revelation. Furthermore, not just that they've got a place to be able to connect with Jesus night and day, but that's going to be essential in a climate, a spiritual climate that is fully demonized, a spiritual climate that is, that is evil. And I mean, you walk out of your house and you're getting slimed left and right. You're just feeling icky, everything, spirits all over the place, the demonic realm operating as at no time, the church is going to need the light of the, the blessing that rests on the house of prayer. The, the cleanness of it, the peace of God from it. But also, as people are worshiping Satan all around, it's important that there be a, a, uh, a counter in that hour. Just think about this. The current expression of Christianity, there are a lot of good things, but we're not particularly walking in the power of God all the time. We're not seeing things transformed left and right. Satan's kingdom is going to be advancing at such a level of wickedness and evil and aggression, it is going to require that there be an answer from the kingdom of light. And Jesus already came up with it. It's called, my house will be called a house of prayer. It's already the plan. It's already the strategy. The church is going to enter into the greatest season of her life that we have ever known in human history, surpassing the book of Acts a million fold, because we're talking about the book of Acts on a global scale. You know, we read the book of Acts, we're primarily looking at Jerusalem and then a few cities. We're talking about the church of the earth being on fire, operating in deep, devoted love and affection to Jesus, also listening for what it is that the Father wants to accomplish in that hour. See, the messengers and the servants of Satan are going to be accomplishing his purposes. The church, however, is going to be rooted and grounded in deep love and in service, hearing the Holy Spirit and operating according to his purposes and his plans. At the end of the age, it's not going to work for the church to be in her current state because the enemy's uh, uh, camp is going to be evolving and, and escalating quite rapidly in the coming generation, this, in this, the decades that follow, that we're in now and that we're going to see coming. The camp of the enemy is going to be escalating and growing in power. You could even say anointing. That wouldn't be a wrong word to use. The church at the end of the age cannot continue to operate like we have. We're going to need to grow deep in love. We're going to need to be able to hear the Holy Spirit. We're going to need to be able to operate together. There are things that a corporate group of people can accomplish in prayer that a person can't. The Lord wants to anoint the church to pray in faith to see the purposes of God released in the earth. There must be a prayer movement, an anointed prayer movement at the end of the age. God's agenda is to raise up a prayer movement even before the end of the age. That's what we're seeing stirring right now. There's been no time in human history that there have been this many expressions across the earth of people trying to worship Jesus 24-7. It's never happened before. No, I mean, not even a tenth as much as what is occurring right now in the earth. It's rising all over the nations of the earth. 24-7 houses of prayer and expressions that are trying to get there like us. We're not 24-7 yet. We're 20 hours a day. You could call it close, but we're not 24-7. There are now more expressions of ministries that are currently 24-7 that have ever been before and way more that are reaching for it than have ever been before. 
Jesus' answer to the darkness that's coming is a preemptive strike in the body of Christ to exalt the Son, Jesus, through night and day prayer and worship and intercession. As we see these houses arise across the earth, it is part of the plan of God preparing for the end times that there might be a bride in partnership, in love, across the earth, lifting up pure incense, Malachi 1.11. God's answer, the first line against the Antichrist, is a powerful prayer movement. It's not enough to be a pew-sitter. We've got to be engaged in the purposes of the kingdom. It is not enough to go to church. We've got to be engaged in the purposes of the kingdom. And God is raising up a committed bride, a church that is pursuing him wholeheartedly, that we might be able to see the purposes of God released in our generation. Jesus said it this way, Luke 18, 7 through 8, Shall not God avenge his elect who cry out to him day and night? Though he bears long with them, I tell you, he will avenge them and speedily. More than any other time in human history, the end times will be an expression of Jesus's or the Father's answer to this specific cry. The church crying out day and night. It says day and night for a reason. It doesn't say a little bit five times a day. Day and night. Now, one person can't do that, but the body of Christ can. The body of Christ can share the load and cry out day and night. And what the word of God says is God will bring about justice for his chosen ones that do that. And he'll bring about, what does that justice look like? Ultimately, I think Jesus was kind of winking when he, when he gave this verse in Luke chapter uh, 18. Because ultimately, justice that is the justice that he's talking about is the same justice that we studied last week when we were talking about the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 saying, how long, Lord, before you avenge our blood and bring us justice? It's actually the same answer, and Jesus would say in the fullest answer. We can get a little bit now. We've always been able to get a little bit, but in the fullest answer, Jesus' answer is night and day prayer at the end of the age will usher in the events that judge wickedness in the fullest sense. And then you will see the avenging of all injustice. And then the establishment of Jesus at the end of the age. Okay, primary function of the end time prayer movement. Releasing the purposes of the kingdom. That's just Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Want to connect these dots. Jesus said, really, if you want to get down to it, Here's how you ought to be praying. Prayer ought to really be about this point. God, let your kingdom, not mine, and let your will, not my desires, happen on the planet, just like you want it. Let's get your planet stuff done, the kingdom stuff done on the planet, the heaven stuff done on the planet. Let your kingdom come, your will be done. This is how we ought to pray. At the end of the age, there's going to be a church that's praying this, not just this verse over and over, kind of, you know, like, you know, rocking back and forth, oh, kingdom come, will be done. It's praying with understanding what those words mean with application to the real-time uh, reality. It's, it, Jesus doesn't just want us to pray those words. It's revelation. What does your kingdom come and your will be done look like right now? What's supposed to happen at the prayer room? What's supposed to happen in Arlington? What is your kingdom happening in Arlington supposed to look like? It's having revelation to know what that is and then praying it. Not just praying this phrase over and over with no understanding. The church at the end of the age will be able to operate in clarity about this and will be praying it. 
Furthermore, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. He's got a will. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, and it was actually his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put all of his will into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, the end of the age, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. This is the purpose of God. God has end time purposes. He has a mysterious will that he's willing to make known to us that will come into fullness at the end of the age. At the end of the age, he will make known the fullness of his will so that the people of God can partner with it that we might be able to pray and see the release of his purposes, his kingdom purposes, be, uh, be released. Ephesians 1.17, just a little bit further down, in that same passage. Hope you guys are seeing this. These are end time, they've got serious end time ramifications. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, why does Paul say we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation? I pray you'd have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that you have spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. First is so that you could know him better. What else? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Why? That you might know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. You know when we get our inheritance? When he comes back. The riches of your glorious inheritance in his holy people. And also, I keep praying for you to get the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you'd know the incomparably great power for us who believe. The incomparably great power will never have seen its manifestation as great as in the last days because there will never have been a foe that needed the, the meeting of that power so great as in the last days. We always have access to his power, but there is a time in future history where we will be given complete access to the fullest expression. And we'll need it because of the fullest expression of evil wandering around the earth. Paul says, I pray that you'd have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you could know him and so you could do his stuff. You could know him, you could know his heart, and you could operate according to what that hour in human history calls for. We all celebrate the sons of Issachar. If you guys know that verse, I believe it's in Numbers. The sons of Issachar. And the reason that we celebrate the sons of Issachar is because they were men who had understanding of the hour in which they lived and they knew what Israel should do in the hour that they were living. We celebrate those that have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, not that are smart about the Bible. That's kind of cool. We celebrate those that get the day. They get it. They know what the hour calls for. They understand what God is doing and they're able to partner and call others into it. It's beyond natural understanding. It's beyond doing the math of what they saw on the news. They have living revelation of the spirit of the Lord, a relationship with God, and what does God want to do in 2020 in Arlington? They have clarity. The church at the end of the age is going to gain that clarity and we're going to gain it the same way everybody in human history ever gained it intimacy with God. Friendship, you could call it prayer. Lots and lots of prayer. I don't mean going to the room. I don't mean murmuring unconnected to the Holy Spirit. I mean actually communing with the Holy Spirit, prayer, actual relationship. What about a corporate bride across the earth engaging at that level? That church is going to operate in the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That church is going to know what God wants to do and is going to be able to release what God wants to do. That's the purpose. It's for partnership. Well, now let's look at what that partnership looks like because it gets a little crazy. 
I want to talk about three ways that we're going to partner in the last days. Now, these are crazy. I want to encourage you to look at some of these on your own because we're not going to have time to go through all of this information tonight. We'll just kind of do a little bit of an overview on each of these three. Partnership. So when you talk about partnership, think about uh, two friends that own a business, okay? Two ladies, they own a hair salon together. If there is a partnership, there's a delegating and a dueling out of responsibilities. One gal, she's supposed to do this, this, and this. Maybe she's the one that opens the store in the mornings. She opens the store, and she's in charge of staffing. But then the other gal in the partnership, she closes the store at night. That allows them to be open longer, and she's in charge of the finances, and she kind of runs some of the, the business operations. It's a partnership, and everybody knows everybody's role. There's clear responsibilities. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. That's what a partnership is. God wants the church at the end of the age to partner with him in his purposes. And the way we do that is we pray in partnership, God, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven, but we do it with understanding of what he's actually trying to accomplish. Well, now let's put these ideas together. God always wants partners, but he gave us the book of Revelation to tell us what's going to happen on the planet ahead of time. We already know what's going to happen. He already told us a thousand details of what's going to happen. A significant part of partnership is knowing what your partner's up to and participating in it. A significant part of partnership, for the, especially with us and the Lord, is knowing his will and then partnering with it in prayer, in practical action, in preaching. We partner with the purposes of God first by knowing what they are. Well, let's look at some of what we know from the book of Revelation and elsewhere, some of what we know the purposes of God are for the church to partner with, for the church to release. One, and this is nuts, is to release the temporal judgments. The, the end time judgments are not against the church. They're released through the church through prayer. I'm going to say that again. The end time judgments are not against the church. God knows how to, how, God knows how to get Noah on a boat and everybody else be, you know, have a problem. God knows how to have, you know, Lot in the middle of this city and, be get, and, and get out of there. God knows how to have people in the midst of judgments, the people of Israel in the land of Goshen. God knows how to have his people right in the middle of the chaos, right in the middle of the judgments, right in the middle of everybody else dying and having a real problem, and his people be just fine. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He's really good at it. The judgments are not against the church. But if we know ahead of time God promises to release these judgments, that's part of God's will on planet Earth. Part of the way those judgments are going to happen is it's part of the prayer guide. We actually know what God wants to do on the Earth, and we can partner with him in it. We're supposed to know his end-time plan so we can partner with it. Partnering to release the seals, trumpets, and bowls. We know them ahead of time. We even know the order. Why would... Why does God give prophetic information, any prophetic information? It's so we can know it ahead of time and partner with it. I'm so grateful for the times that the Lord has given me clear prophetic, uh, you know, what's up before it happened. Clear prophetic information. So then when the thing starts to unfold in front of me, I go, oh, I think we had a dream about this. This is so incredibly helpful to have known what was going to come ahead of time. I don't even have to guess at what to do right now. I already know. That's the reason prophetic information is given ahead of time. It's not to muse at and make charts. I appreciate musing. I appreciate some charts. But that's not the point. The point is partnership. 
God releases prophetic understanding so that we can see it ahead of time, go, yep, that's God, and then we can agree with it and we can partner with it before, during, and after. That's the reason he tells us stuff ahead of time. He has given us more understanding about what's going to happen in the final three and a half years of this age than perhaps any other time in human history. It's so the church can partner. It's why the book of Revelation starts off with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which John had and was given by the angel so that the church might understand what must soon take place. We were given the book of Revelation not to be scared of, but to throw ourselves into it so that we could partner with the plan. So part of the plan, a big part of the plan, are some giant owies, some big judgment moments. We're not given those so that we can be scared. We're given them so that we can understand that we can partner. The church is actually going to be partnering with Jesus in releasing the judgments. And just as a little point here, I gave you part C on page four. This is historically how God has always done it. Not every single time, but many, many times in the word. And I gave you a few examples there. He uses his people in partnership in order to release judgments on the wicked. That is not a new idea. It's a profoundly biblical one. You've got lots of times where God says, hey, people of God, come close. I got a word for you. And they're all, okay, what, what do you got? Well, Joshua, it's time for you to go judge the Amalekites and kill them for me. Oh my gosh, it's really intense. Yeah, I've got a real beef with them. I need you to go kill them all. Oh my gosh, that's God using the people of God to judge the wicked. This is a pattern in scripture. It's not a new idea. It's new to us. And God has allowed a season of time where there has been peace, where there has not been the kingdom of God operating in this way at this level. But the end time judgments are going to make so much sense of the Old Testament God. Because God is not a God in the New Testament and a God in the Old Testament. He's the same God. But there's a lot that he has had on pause in a season of mercy in order that the the people of the earth might turn to his son. But I'm telling you right now, you've got the battle of Jericho. You've got Jehoshaphat and the Moabites. You've got the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. Even the deliverance of Peter, really, you could call that even a little bit of a judgment because, man, all those guys just lost their prisoner. How did it happen? God anointed the people of God's prayer. It says while they were praying, that's how this thing broke open. That's how Peter got out of jail. There's so many times, even Noah and the flood, it was partnership. It's God partnering with his people that winds up in partnership releasing judgment on the wicked. None of these people were hurt while the evil were being judged. They were being used by God in partnership. So there's going to be significant partnership as we move forward. Releasing significant angelic activity. I'm going to go quickly through this one. I'm going to just read you Daniel 10. This is Daniel praying, and some commentary comes from an angel about Daniel's prayers and how this works. The angel said to me, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Heard where? In heaven. I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's talking about a demonic principality, by the way, withstood me for 21 days. Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. I want you to catch this. Daniel is being told as a man, Daniel, your intercession resulted in battles in the heavenly realms, big battles, that included Michael the archangel. 
your prayers included releasing angels in the heavenly realms, really big spiritual fights happening. Part of what we're going to do in the last days with understanding, not with willy-nilly, I release this angel and angels come. We're going to operate in the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We're going to know what God wants to do when, and part of the purpose of the church in the last days related to the prayer movement is to release angelic activity. It's going to change situations. We can even see here, if you go down a little bit further, this same Michael is being released again in the last days to do more warfare. Daniel 12, 1, at that time, talking about the end times, Michael shall stand up and there shall be a time of trouble, talking about the tribulation, such as never been since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Michael being released again. Well, how was Michael released last time? In connection to intercession. How will Michael be released the next time? In connection to intercession. Look at there in Revelation. War broke out in heaven. This is the big war in Revelation chapter 12 that we know of. War breaks out in heaven, the end of the age. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they didn't prevail, nor was found a place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that, ain't, that serpent of old called Satan or the devil, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. Do you guys see this? There's battles in the heavenly realms that we're being told about ahead of time. The church that's in partnership with God will be partnering with God. Part of that partnership is, oh God, help Michael and the boys win today. We're going to be praying the purposes of God. We're going to be in partnership, releasing his purposes. The church needs to mature. Right now, we have so little understanding of any of these things. We're in kindergarten, and that's okay so long as we don't stay there. The purposes of God is actually to get the church in deep friendship with Jesus, in understanding of who we are as the bride of God, the bride of Christ, the bride. And God will have an equally yoked bride. I promise you, he didn't write us in Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked. And then he's going to be unequally yoked and have this ugly, really out of place, unrighteous bride that doesn't know how to partner with him. He will have an equally yoked bride. This is the season, these decades leading up, it's our training ground where we're learning and growing and studying the book of Revelation that we might be a church that understands the purposes of God and the generation that we're living in and even the transition of the next age. Releasing the millennial kingdom on the earth. I just want to say it this way. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say come. That verse is loaded with, under, with clarity, with uh, with. Components of the purposes of God in the last days. That is a loaded verse. That verse doesn't just mean, you know, the church is kind of praying, come, or we sing a song and it's real sweet. The verse that follows that says Jesus responds to that prayer and says, yes, I am coming soon. Jesus comes soon to the church crying out, come Lord Jesus, come back to the planet. The prayer movement at the end of the age actually ushers in the return of Jesus to the planet. Peter tells us that we can hasten the day of the Lord's return. Hasten. That means hurry up. We can make it happen faster. Happen faster how? Like, you know, build some more churches or do some. That all, I guess, can be part of it. We hasten the day by doing the instructions of Revelation 22, verse uh, 17. Come, Lord Jesus, the church in the earth will be crying out in 
hot intercession in deep love and devotion to Jesus in a unified voice across the earth, across denominations, across everything. Come, Lord Jesus, and Jesus will come. You know when he comes, what he brings with him? The Matthew chapter 6, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. The best we can do right now before Jesus comes back is get a shadow of the kingdom come. The best we can do. You know when the kingdom comes? When the king comes. When the king comes to the earth, he brings with him the fullness of the kingdom. And that's why it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, gave you there at the top of page six, and then we'll break into groups. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, the last trumpet. When the last trumpet sounds, Jesus comes. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When does that happen? When Jesus comes at the last trumpet. When the last trumpet sounds, Jesus comes, and he brings with him the fullness of the establishment of the kingdom. The church at the end of the age gets to partner in ushering in the kingdom age on the planet. This is profound. We want to understand what the book of Revelation says so that we can rightly partner with it, because if these ideas tonight are all brand new to us, and that's okay, we don't want them to be brand new to us in three years. We can't afford for these ideas to be something on the back shelf. We want to understand who we are and what the purposes of the Lord are in this hour and partner with them fully. All right, so what's the end time Satan worship movement going to look like, specifically the worship aspects of it, and are there some of those tentacles already in the culture now? Um, for sure, the, uh, the whispers are there, but nothing is full grown. The wheat and the tares grow up at the end of the age. And it's right now, whatever we're seeing in the demonic realm, it's the babiest baby that's ever been a baby ever by comparison to what it's going to grow up to be. Um, as far as what will the worship movement look like, I don't know, but I've got some principles that I think that we can draw from. Uh, one is Satan is not an inventor. He's a copycat. And so there's Christ. I need an antichrist. There's a worship movement at the end of the age. I need a fake worship movement that worships me at the end of the age. So I think it's actually realistic that there's going to be some aspects of what is occurring in the church, in the worship movement in the church. Think about this. It says at the end of the age that many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. They're going to wind up taking the mark of the beast. How many of them were in houses of prayer a week ago? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but probably not zero. Well, they might go, well, let me tell you how we used to do it back at our house of prayer and maybe even help inform some of what's going on in the demonic uh, worship movement. I don't know that. That's just an idea. Uh, but one thing that we can note is that it will be, I think this is just another one of those principles about, you know, that we got from the word. Satan is intensely jealous. And there will be a worship movement of Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There will be a worship movement of Jesus 24-7. Satan is intensely jealous. It just seems to me he's probably going to want the equivalent and more. And so it, it, that's just a thought. And maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, you asked, what do I think? I've thought about some of these things. And it's like, I think that Satan is going to want what he sees Jesus getting and more. I also think that there is going to be, you know, you've got all these Old Testament 
worship practices that included slashing, blood. And Satan is, was the one provoking those things all throughout history. I think that the level of sacrifice that Satan is going to want in his worship meetings is going to be more significant in a, in a, uh, a costly sense. And so I think that all of those things might help inform it, might look completely different from any of that. One thing we can be sure of is it will be the absolute worst thing you can possibly imagine. And so it will, whatever you're imagining, it will be worse than that. It will be heinous. It, it is Satan worship. Satan has never had open Satan worship culturally accepted. Open Satan worship culturally accepted. It's always been a lesser demon that he doesn't get the full credit of or from. Open Satan worship culturally accepted on a global scale. He's just going to get more power hungry, more you know, raging, more bloodthirsty. And so who knows, but if part of, just throwing it out there, we know that there is going to be an orchestrated system for the murder of the saints. How might that play into the worship movement of Satan? Just some thoughts out there. So whatever it is, it's going to be horrible. And it's going to be all the more reason that the church needs to be bound together in deep connections and relationships and, and in underground prayer movement realities all over the place because we are not going to, by and large, the planet, the church and the planet, isn't going to be able to have you know, uh, open expressions of, of worship at their church service. The churches are all going to be gone in most of the earth except the cities of refuge, and we'll get to that later. But... The, uh, the, in most of the earth, you're not going to be able to have the church building on the, down the street and it be a reserved place for Jesus worship because you're going to have an, a culture that is 100% dominated by Satan worship and followers of Satan. So it's going to complicate things and shift things. But again, there's also the protection clause, and we'll see how that plays out. We'll touch on that more in a later session. So, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, question here. All right, so should we be praying sequentially through the book of Revelation? If it's an end-time prayer guide, how does that help us right now? Um, the clock hasn't started yet. And so uh, the way that we'll know that the clock has started related to the primary events of Revelation um, is when the peace treaty is signed uh, with Israel and the surrounding nations, and a seven-year peace treaty is signed, and a, uh, a man is connected to that in a way that is obvious, uh, that will be the, the final, uh, you know, kind of uh, trigger point. But that peace treaty can't be any peace treaty. That peace treaty has to equal global peace. Right now, we don't see global peace. And I don't care what treaty was just signed with the United Arab Emirates. It didn't bring about global peace. So that was not the peace treaty. This peace treaty is going to be with Israel and the nations, and it's going to usher in a fake global peace across the planet. We're not there. When we're there, we'll know it because the whole world will be celebrating finally peace. And the only reason the world will be celebrating finally peace is because it was preceded by years or decades of war, 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 war across the planet. That war, that, anyway, I'm off track. Okay, answer the question. The book of Revelation in its primary application of the events has not begun yet. All of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 17 and 18, the spirit of Babylon is already in the, in, in the hour that we're living in. We're seeing some of that. But as far as the main like storyline of the book of Revelation, the main events, none of that has started yet. That all starts when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. 
So where are we at right now related to our interaction with this end-time prayer guide? We need to familiarize ourselves with it. I can remember the first time that I started, and a bunch of us around this community, started reading the apostolic prayers, prayers the apostles prayed. I can remember the first time we were reading them, we were like, that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. I don't even know what we're saying. I don't like this. This feels weird. Why are we praying prayers that are in the Bible? It just seems so weird. And then the more we started thinking about it, it's like if God wrote down prayers in the Bible, prayers in the Bible, prayers got recorded. Those prayers are probably valuable. That was kind of a first aha moment. And then we had layers and layers and layers and continue to about the value of the apostolic prayers. We've got to be doing similarly with the book of Revelation. We've got to understand it's the only book in the Bible that commands a blessing if you just read it. Why? Because we're really supposed to know it. It's supposed to be a book that is not foreign to us. So our beginning point in our partnership right now is it needs to be familiarity. We need to familiarize ourselves with the book of Revelation so it's not foreign to us. It's not foreign text. We can talk about Revelation ideas, that is, ideas that are in the book of Revelation, and that a community of people would instantly know, yeah, I know about where that's at. And it wouldn't be an idea that's so foreign to us, but it would be something that we're familiar with because we're never going to be able to pray it with clarity if we don't have any idea it's in the book. So right now where we're at is a season, I think, where the church needs to begin to familiarize ourselves with the book of Revelation so that we could get some revelation so we could then even know how to partner and how to pray it later. The time will come, however, where the church will be in an expedited growth process, and I'll just tell you what's going to trigger that more than anything, is persecution. The, the way the church is going to grow the fastest is life is going to get the horriblest, and then the church will grow the most. That's what's always happened in the earth. That's what's always happened in history. It's how the church was born in the book of Acts. Under severe persecution, the church thrives and flourishes, and we mature. In that hour, we're going to grow in increased level of revelation about the book, as well as maturity, so that we don't in arrogance, pray, yeah, that's right, judgment on you, blood on you. We start quoting little pieces, parts of the Bible in a total wrong spirit. Jesus is meek and lowly, and that is the spirit with which we will be praying, and God now release the bowls of wrath on the earth. We will not be praying it uh, with you know a cavalier bravado. We'll be praying in agreement with his purposes, in humility in our heart, in partnership with his, uh, with his spirit. So, um, so anyway, I know that was kind of a long answer, but it's because uh, we're really not there yet. And really, to start praying things that you have no understanding about that include all this stuff in the book of Revelation uh, would be out of place. Instead, let's go to kindergarten. Instead of trying to operate at collegiate math, let's go learn that there are apples and oranges and then we'll figure out how to add them later and then how to multiply them. So a uh, great question. Uh, Luke, your question. That's a great question. Okay, the, the question is, Okay, we're on board. Jesus wants a worship movement at the end of the age, and obviously that has to start before one minute before the end of the age. It needs to start sometime before and grow. We're on board. What do we do? How do we partner with it? How do we help get the word out? How do we, in our little bit of strength, add to it, strengthen it, you know, see it uh, grow in the earth? Well, uh, the, the most um, simplistic answer is, Partner with where it already is. 
That's the most simplistic answer. So here's a house of prayer. Partner with it. Don't just come in the room. That's good for you. Sign up to be in the room. That's good for all of us. That actually helps build it. You can't build a house with random material. You build it with bricks and intentionality. And so each one of you are bricks that are building the house of God in this hour, that are building the priesthood. So the first thing I would say is build this house. Help us. Partner. Commit to prayer meetings every week where you're going to be in this room lifting up the name of Jesus, where we know that you're going to be in this room because that means we could actually move somebody else to a different time when there's nobody in this room. Pick some times, and if this house of prayer is too far from your home, find a different one. That's one way. Second, get the understanding. If tonight was a, a bit of a revelatory moment where you go, a prayer and worship movement at the end of the age that honors Jesus, that's valuable. You're never going to be able to make sense to somebody else as long as that concept is still super new to you. You've got to get clarity about that concept before you can make sense to anybody else. How many of you, when you gave your life to Jesus, it was the sweetest couple of weeks because you were telling everybody and you didn't make a lick of sense to nobody? I mean, you got saved and you were like saying it all wrong and all weird. You're like, it was great, man. You just need him. You need him. Quit it. Repent. You got to stop it, sinners. And it's like people weren't really able to hear you. And, and you were trying your best, but over time, you got a little bit more clarity on what it is that just happened in your soul. You got a little bit more clarity on what the sacrifice of Jesus means. A little bit of clarity on what as a believer are the benefits of being a believer and what, is the, what are the downfalls of being in the world. You got some clarity, and now you can actually make sense to somebody. Well, very similarly, the concept of the prayer movement, it does require a little bit of clarity. There are plenty of Bible verses. There's ones on the wall right there. But if it's the first time you've ever read Luke 18, 7, you might have a little bit difficult time explaining it to the next person. The kingdom of God, let's say it this way. Jesus said, it's good for you that I'm going. I'll send the Holy Spirit. Then he said in the Great Commission, I'm leaving. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You can't teach someone to obey that which you don't understand. So let's get some clarity. And then if you're getting clarity in a house of prayer, committed to building it, you'll be in the best place possible to invite the next person to come build with you. And then just so you know, this house is committed to, we've already been a part of it for, you know, probably 10, 12 years. We are committed to helping build the house of prayer in the earth through missions and sending finances and teams as we have availability and eventually planting houses of prayer. We're committed to that vision. Great question. In the back. Yeah, okay. So in an hour of persecution, like let's say right now, the persecuted church in China, how is the persecuted church in China doing night and day prayer? How are they doing the Jesus worship movement? Because that might give us a little bit of a picture of what things might look like broad scale at the end of the age. Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first is the number of people in a persecuted reality that can gather together has to be limited. It can't be 2,000 people meeting. There's not a space that can be secretive enough to hold 2,000 people very often. <laughs> Maybe you got by with it that one time. But it's not the kind of thing that you can do regularly. So what does the persecuted church in China do? They meet in homes. They meet at homes. They meet in special areas of the back workshop, of the this, of the that. And it's a smaller group of people. Practically, what do they do? I would imagine they either whisper 
or they insulate the walls. Let's not go full-on loud worship of Jesus in a room that's all glass and the neighbor across the street is suspicious of us. Let's figure out how to insulate the walls. One of the things that we had to spend a ton of time and energy on just so that we didn't bother the neighbors when we moved into this house or this uh, building, we've got residential neighbors right there. They're maybe 30 feet that way is their property. And then we've got other commercial buildings nearby. We had to take all the windows out of this room. There used to be significant windows in this room. We took windows out and then we put extra insulation in in order to soundproof this room as best as we could. That was a practical thing we could do just to not tick off the neighbors. I imagine there's going to be a lot of that going on at the end of the age. How can we, let's, if we insulate things well enough, maybe we can sing a little louder. And so I think there's going to be some practical wisdom components. I also think there's going to be some significant leadership of the Holy Spirit moments that are going to help us. Just like there's going to be a, a demonic force that's going to be empowering the world in aggression, there's going to be an increased measure of the Holy Spirit in his leadership, in his wisdom, in even the, these are not the Christians you're looking for sorts of, uh, sort of situations. There's going to be powerful prayers coming from the church that are going to wind up protecting the church in profound ways that we can't yet imagine. Sometimes the, the meeting is going to get busted. Sometimes the meeting is going to be protected for weeks or months or years or indefinitely. So I think there's going to be a lot of that, but I, I think the most primary answer to it is where the church is persecuted, and it's obvious, if they catch you, you're going to get killed, it's going to be smaller and it's going to be quieter. And, but that doesn't mean it has to be any less authentic. It doesn't have, mean it has to be any less night and day. Uh, one last detail I'll share, and then we'll quit for tonight. In my opinion, the most profound prayer movement in the history of, a, of the, the world up until what started in China in the last few years. What started in China, I would say, has eclipsed this. But up until that point in the history of the world, the most profound prayer movement I've ever heard of is actually called the Indonesian Prayer Towers. There were 500 cities in Indonesia. It's one nation. 500 cities had 24-7 prayer run in these things they called the Indonesian prayer towers, and they were predominantly run by 16-member teams. 16-member teams kept 24-7 up year after year in 500 cities in Indonesia because they were committed. They were going in, in groups of two, sometimes groups of one, sometimes groups of three. They'd have a corporate set here and there. There was a commitment to night and day prayer that was held down by 16 people times 500 different cities. To me, it's one of the most profound things that's ever happened in human history. And so you just see the capacity where hearts are burning for Jesus and persecution is great. There is a way for the church to be able to move forward. So, great. We're going to have the worship team come on up here. Oh, they're already here. This is delightful. Hey, listen, I want to tell you this. What we're going to do in the coming weeks, we're going to be going back and forth between themes related to the prayer movement and the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals. Because as we will see in the coming weeks, chapter 6 of the book of Revelation and the beginning of chapter 8, the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals that Jesus is the one who opens the seals in the book of Revelation, the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals are dynamically related to the prayer movement at the end of the age. So we're going to be looking at those seals, and we're also going to be looking at some aspects of the prayer movement in the book of Revelation. Father, we... This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.